Well, good morning. My name is Dan Christian. I'm one of your associate pastors here overseeing the enfolding ministry. I'm really thankful that each of you are here this morning. This morning uh, is the kickoff for our all-church Bible study series on transition. And so for the next uh, eight weeks, we'll be exploring both in these Sunday morning times as well as in uh, small groups throughout the week, uh, the topic of transition. And we'll be looking at that both in terms of what we as a church family are, are facing as uh, we look, um, look ahead to Pastor Corey's retirement in uh, just a few short months and uh, welcome Pastor Rocky in as, as our new senior pastor. Uh, but also each of us personally, individually, and as families, uh, we walk through various seasons of transition. And so in those places where we uh, struggle to kind of come to terms with uh, the changes that are happening to us and, and around us, uh, we need to think carefully about how do we walk with God in those seasons. Not just so that we can get through it and survive, but how do we walk with God in ways that will actually move us toward greater growth and maturity in Christ in the midst of uh, that transition season. And so in this series, we'll, uh, we'll be looking uh, at transition, trying to understand it from a biblical uh, viewpoint and also looking at how uh, we navigate transition. I'm, I'm excited because we have over 40 uh, small groups that will be meeting on uh, different days of the week in different locations uh, throughout each week uh, to go through this study together. And uh, so the, the Sunday sermons will introduce each topic and then in the small groups during the week uh, that will be fleshed out and, and worked out in application and sharing with, uh, with one another. So if you haven't yet uh, signed up for a group, I know we haven't got everybody yet, and this is an all-church study, so uh, that means uh, you as well. Uh, so sign up. Uh, we, we still have a few uh, groups that, that have plenty of uh, space available. Uh, we have a group that will be happening on Sunday afternoons um, after second service uh, here at church. Uh, so if you, like me, live kind of on the periphery and, and not in an area where uh, there are a lot of options for groups, uh, maybe a group here at church would work well for you. Um, so sign up for a group. Uh, in fact, I give you permission right now to go on your phone to evergreensgv.org and you can click on the orange box that says All Church Bible Study Series right in the center of your screen and that will take you to a form where you can fill it out and uh, let us know and we will plug you in. Uh, probably not before the end of the sermon, but uh, as soon as possible um, in the next day or so. All right. I also want to uh, just give a big thank you uh, to those of you that are leading or hosting or teaching. Um, I know there's a lot of you taking part in, in helping to facilitate uh, this study. Uh, for some of you, I know this is just a continuation. You've been shepherding a group uh, for years, and we thank you for uh, your faithfulness to our church family in that way. Others of you are, are stepping in uh, new and committing what ends up to be a considerable amount of time uh, to prepare and lead and teach and host um, so that we can have more groups available and more of our church family can take part. Um, so thank you to the leaders. You know, the, the Bible doesn't give us direct instructions, explicit instructions on how to deal with transition. 
In fact, the Bible doesn't talk about transition um, directly at all. And so on Sunday mornings here, our primary goal will be to exegete well, to explain well the passage of Scripture that we're going through. But then the whole, the whole point of having both Sunday uh, service and small groups is that the small groups then would take the content of what uh, we look at on Sunday mornings and would be able to flesh that out and look at how that applies in the particular areas of transition that we walk through, both as a church family and individually. And so our text for uh, this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 7 through 18. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open up there to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's uh, rise together as we uh, read God's word. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that in your sovereign will, you have put us as a church family in this particular time and place into a season of transition. And Lord, we want to grow from it, to not just get through it, but to be changed in the midst of it. And so Lord, would you teach us, teach us through your word, teach us through interaction with one another, allow your spirit to do the work that you desire um, in our hearts. So we pray that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as we read through this passage in 2 Corinthians, there's probably one word in this passage that stands out simply uh, due to the uh, number of times it's repeated. Anybody notice that word? Glory, right? You can, you can say that, that's okay. Uh, in, the, in the ESV translation that I read from, then glory is mentioned 12 times um, in that passage. And glory is, glory is one of these kind of Christianese words that we use all the time. We see it all over in Scripture, 
We sing about it in a lot of songs, but we perhaps don't stop to consider what it actually means. And so we're gonna explore that concept of glory this morning from this passage. What exactly is glory? In C.S. Lewis's well-known sermon, The Weight of Glory, Lewis spoke of glory as both fame and luminosity or, or brightness. In other words, God's infinite goodness, his worth and his beauty grants him acclaim or fame. But at the same time, that infinite worth and beauty is displayed in a visible radiance and brightness. Pastor John Piper uh, says that God's glory is the going public of his infinite worth, the display of his infinite worth. In human terms, we might speak of a bride at her wedding day being glorious, right? We might even say that she was so beautiful and so happy that she was glowing, right? But when we say that, we don't mean that there's an actual light that's emanating from her. As finite human beings, we have indwelling sin, and that sin clouds and restricts the glory of the image of God in us. But God is infinite and holy. He is above all. He uh, is, is God, <laughs> and there is nothing that restricts or clouds His glory. And therefore, there is a brightness that comes from His very being. And in fact, Scripture tells us that that brightness is so dazzling, so holy, that no sinful human being can look on God in His glory and live. But glory also, by definition, is meant to have an effect. It is meant to be seen, to be enjoyed, to be reveled in, to be reflected back. If something is very glorious, but no one notices it or appreciates that glory, then it would seem that the glory is lessened somehow. But on the other hand, when the glory is seen and it's enjoyed, then it, en it enhances that glory. And when we say that we give glory to God, that's, that's what we're saying, that we are reflecting back His glory by making much of His beauty and His goodness and His worth. So glory is meant to produce an effect. Ultimately, glory is meant to effect transformation. So that is what glory is, if we were to define it. But in order for us to understand how glory fits into what the Apostle Paul is writing here to the believers in Corinth, we first have to back way up and consider God's overall plan of redemption. And so my first point is this, that glory is the goal of redemption. Glory is the goal of redemption. We sang this morning the song that uh, Pastor Terry wrote for our summer conference uh, just a couple months ago. And it says, before all time began, there was a plan, there was a story, and this is what that plan is, redeeming fallen man by your hand for your glory. Your grand salvation plan and purposes will stand until redemption's final day. So God has a grand plan. He is sovereign over all. There is a timeline of salvation history that he is working out. And after the fall of man into sin, there are several movements, several stages, maybe chapters of the story, you could say, that are showing the ways in which God is carrying out his sovereign will and plan. 
And there's a whole lot more to it than what I can describe in 30 seconds here. But in a very, very simplified way, we could say that God is moving from law to spirit to glory. From law to spirit to glory. The law that God gave to Moses, that wasn't just a list of rules to obey, but it was actually a covenant between God and his chosen people. It was the means by which his people could enter into relationship with him. Sometimes we actually think of the law as a bad thing because it's often held in, in contrast uh, to, uh, to grace. But Romans 7.12 tells us that the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law was not a bad thing. It was, it was simply limited. The law made people aware of sin, but it could not do anything about sin. It was a vital preliminary step in God's redemption plan because it allowed God's people to clearly see God's holiness and their sinfulness, our sinfulness, even though it could not bring about changed hearts. After Jesus' life and death and resurrection, then God sent his Holy Spirit and through that initiated a new covenant with his people. And this new covenant of the Spirit is not only more glorious, as this passage talks about, but more importantly, it is effective in bringing changed hearts. Through His Spirit, God writes His law on our very hearts, bringing not only an awareness of sin, but also the power to defeat sin. And so, in God's plan of redemption, there was the law, the old covenant, the Spirit, which is the new covenant. And then we look forward to glory, to the day when all of us who are His people will be brought into His very presence. And there, we will not only have the power to defeat sin, but we will be free from the very presence of sin. And there will we, we will experience the fullness of God's glory, but also we will experience the glory that God is even now forming within us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 tells us that the things that we suffer here and now are preparing for us, not just for God, but preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so glory is the goal of God's redemption plan. Glory for Him primarily, but also glory in us. And that glory is increasing as God's plan it unfolds more and more. So coming back to our passage in 2 Corinthians, in verses 7 through 11, Paul compares the glory of the law with the glory of the Spirit. So the glory of the old covenant with the glory of the new. He reminds his readers what happened when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law, to receive that covenant that God was giving his people. And we're not going to turn back to it now, but you can read about Moses' encounter in Exodus 33 and 34. And in that time when Moses saw even a glimpse of the glory of God there on the mountain, the result was that Moses' face shone brightly, the skin on his face shone visibly. And that glory, which was a reflection of the glory of God when he was in God's presence, that, that glory remained on Moses' face even after he departed from the presence of the Lord. 
much like a glow-in-the-dark shirt will continue to shine uh, in a dark room when it's been in the light for a while. The people in Moses' day were initially fearful of his glowing face, and Moses put a veil over his face to block the glory so that the people could not stare at it. Well, the glory that Moses encountered that day was tremendously bright, but it was limited. It did not bring about any permanent change in the hearts of the people that he was uh, ministering to, nor in Moses himself. In fact, the only way that the, the other people experienced God's glory was through the few glimpses that they got of Moses' shining face before he put that veil on to block it. Paul says in verse seven here, that the law produced death, or it was the ministry of death. And again in verse nine, that it was a ministry of condemnation. What does that mean? All the law could do was point out sin, to make people aware of what sin is. And because that is what it does, and it can't help with sin, then essentially the law condemns people to death. Romans 7, 7 says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law tells us clearly, this is sin, this is not. It draws the line there. But it doesn't help us stay away from sin. And in fact, when we cross that line into sin, the law condemns us and says, you just sinned. And so it, it points out what is sin, but it has no power to break that sin. Because the ministry of the law was limited in those ways, Paul says, then the ministry of the Spirit greatly surpasses it. In the new covenant ministry, God puts His Spirit in every believer. He writes His law on our hearts. It's no longer external, but it's internal to us. And the presence of the Spirit in every believer brings much more than simply an awareness of sin. The Spirit provides the power to defeat sin. And that, that was a huge change. That was a huge difference. And it brought with it a surpassing glory, a greater glory that was so much greater that Paul says the previous glory is almost disappears. You can't, can't hardly even see it because uh, the, the surpassing glory was so much greater. And so glory is the goal of redemption, and that glory continues to increase with each stage of God's plan. But glory is not only a goal, but glory is also a means because glory is meant to bring about transformation. And so my second point is this, that glory is a means of transformation. Glory is a means of transformation. Despite how glorious the old covenant was, it could do nothing to produce changed hearts in God's people. Therefore, the new covenant ministry of the Spirit has a surpassing glory because it does truly affect transformation in the hearts of believers. And verse 18 clues us in to the transforming effect that this glory is meant to bring about. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that same 
glorious image by the Spirit. And so beholding God's glory opens the door to the transformation of our hearts in Christ. But notice the verb tense that is used there in that verse, verse 18. It says, we are being transformed. This is an ongoing transformation, a continuous process that God brings about throughout our lifetime. Now, there is a transformation that happens once for all when we are justified, when God delivers us out of the kingdom of darkness and adopts us and brings us into his kingdom as sons and daughters. We are made new in Christ, and that transformation is complete. But there is also a process that's different from justification that's called progressive sanctification, and that continues through our whole life as God forms us little by little into the likeness of Christ. And it is that ongoing sanctification that this verse is speaking of, that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. But notice also this is a passive verb. It's not an active command saying, you go transform yourself, but it's a transformation that happens to us. It's not something that we can bring about on our own. At the same time, it's not a completely passive process, though. There's a part that we have in it. But our part is simply to behold, to look intently at the glory of the Lord. But before we discuss what that means to look intently, to behold the glory of the Lord, we need to look at uh, verses 12 to 17 here, which talk about a veil. Paul is speaking about a veil, both that Moses had, but also applying it in his current situation. What is that about? When Moses came out from the presence of the Lord, then his face would be shining with that reflected glory from the Lord. And to keep the people from staring at his glowing face, Moses put the veil over it. And that blocked the glory so that it could not be seen by the people. But what we're not sure of is whether that veil also blocked the effect of that glory on other people. In other words, Moses' face started glowing simply because he was in the presence of great glory with God. And we do not know whether the glory reflected from his face could also have that same effect on other people. That's conjecture. I don't know whether that could have happened. But what we do know is that that didn't happen because he put the veil over it. And the veil over his face not only blocked the people from seeing that glory, but it also blocked whatever potential effect that glory could have had. And Paul is saying in verse 15 that, figuratively speaking, there's a similar veil that covers the hearts of unbelieving Jews. He says their unbelief, their refusal to see Jesus as their Messiah, acted as a veil that blocked them from seeing the glory of God. But not only from seeing it, but then from being changed by it. The surpassing glory of Christ was evident, very evident to uh, those people. Jesus was walking among them and it would have produced transformation in their hearts, but the veil of their unbelief blocked them from seeing that glory and receiving that transformation. 
This is exactly what Pastor Rocky was preaching about last week, about the blind man. And the upside-down reality was that the man born blind ended up being the one who saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and he was changed by it. Not just that his eyes were healed, but his heart was changed, his life was changed. But then the religious leaders, even the man's parents, who had physical sight, they were the ones blinded by their unbelief, veiled by their unbelief and fear of man, so that they did not see the glory of God and thus were not changed by it. And last week, Pastor Rocky quoted uh, from 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, which is uh, just the next paragraph after this passage we're looking at. And that verse says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In contrast, verse 6 says that God has given us as believers the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, if God's glory is blocked or veiled, there is no transformation that comes. Veiled glory blocks transformation, but the flip side of that is that unveiled glory invites transformation. And verse 16 tells us that the veil is taken away when one turns to the Lord. When the Spirit of God regenerates the heart of a believer, He removes that veil from their eyes so they can both see and also be changed by the surpassing glory of God. And Paul says that we, as believers, are not like Moses, verse 13 says, that we are bold, we don't need to put that veil over our face, but rather with unveiled face, verse 18, we behold the glory of God, and through that beholding, we experience the gradual transformation that he brings. So what does it mean then to behold the glory of God? That can seem like a rather nebulous concept. How do we do that or, or can we even do that? Depending on what Bible translation you're looking at, that word beholding may also be translated as beholding as in a mirror or reflecting as a mirror. And so there's a spectrum of, of uh, understanding of what uh, that particular word means. Beholding seems to be a more active thing. Reflecting is a little uh, less active, uh, whether there's a mirror involved or whether it's directly. Um, and so it's, it's not sure exactly what that word is getting at. Uh, but one commentator said, the, the primary idea communicated by the verb is, uh, has to do with looking at something intently. So despite the spectrum of meaning that it can have, the primary idea is that we look at something intently. It's a different word than what's used in verse 7 and verse 13 um, that's translated to gaze at or look intently or keep your eyes fixed on. Uh, those are different words, and yet the concept is the same. The idea, the meaning is very similar. In our context, our beholding of the glory of God, that may not be with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our heart. And so I think we can define beholding the glory of God as giving our undivided attention to God or putting our complete focus on Him. 
The author of Hebrews speaks of fixing our eyes on Jesus. Paul writes elsewhere of setting our minds on things above. And so we behold the glory of God by directing our attention to him and keeping our attention on him. So what might this beholding the glory of God look like in everyday life? Here are some uh, suggestions, some uh, possibilities. It may mean just thinking deeply about the lyrics of the song that you are singing as you worship God. Immersing yourself in those great truths, giving your undivided attention to the one whom you are praising, rather than thinking about lunch or uh, whatever is next. It may look like simple prayers of gratitude or joy in response to the beauty of God's creation that you see in a sunset or at the beach. It may require setting aside half a Saturday to be alone with God or to attend one of these retreats in order to give your full attention to what God is saying to you. It may look like memorizing a portion of Scripture, putting it in your phone or on your desk so that you can constantly rehearse a particular truth. There's a lot of different ways in which uh, you can uh, behold the glory of God because it simply means that we are giving our full attention to Him in order to revel in His goodness and His holiness, in order to spread His fame and make that known to others around us. So turning our full attention onto God's goodness, that is what invites transformation, but it is not something that guarantees transformation. God alone brings transformation in our hearts and lives through His Spirit, and our intentional focusing on Him simply puts us in a posture of receptivity or openness to His gracious work of change. So notice that the, the active verbs in this passage are turning in verse 16 and beholding in verse 18. That is, that is all we can do. We turn to God. We behold His glory. And God is the one who removes the veil, who brings about the transformation. So what does all this have to do with transition? If, if glory is the goal of redemption and glory is also a means of transformation, how does glory connect with this transition that we are in as a church? How does glory relate to the personal transitions that each of us are or will be walking through? Well, seasons of transition are opportunities for transformation. As God carries out his sovereign plan of redemption, God orchestrates change. Our passage this morning explored one major change that God orchestrated, the change from law to spirit, from old covenant to new. And in that change, he revealed a glory that far surpassed the glory that had been known before. And as we give our full attention to that glory, we are changed as well. And so seasons of transition are opportunities for transformation simply because they are opportunities for us to turn our focus on God and His glory. In His sovereignty, God not only orchestrates change on this grand scale to move humanity through the stages of His redemptive plan, but God also orchestrates change on the small scale the scale of our individual lives and our communities. And the changes that he orchestrates on that level also pave the way for greater glory 
and thus greater transformation. And so for the transition that we are in as a church family, this is an opportunity for transformation because it's an opportunity to turn our full attention to the glory of God, to trust Him, to worship Him in the midst of the uncomfortableness of change, we turn our attention to Him, and through that, He changes us. The seasons of transition that we walk through personally, transitions in school, in relationships, in health, in life stage, all of these personal transitions are also opportunities for transformation for the same reason, because they are opportunities that in the uncomfortableness of that, we can fix our eyes on Jesus and look intently at His beauty and His goodness, and through that beholding of His glory, we are gradually transformed. But that transformation doesn't come automatically simply because we are in a season of transition. Certainly, there are plenty of other things that pull at our attention, plenty of other good, even glorious pursuits that can block our focus from the glory of Christ. And so we must be very intentional and persistent in turning and beholding and focusing on the glory of Christ. And so as we listen to these sermons on Sunday morning, as we share life together in small groups, then let that be the aim uh, that we are, we are aiming for, that we are aiming for transformation, that we are aiming to see the beauty of God and through that be changed. The theme statement uh, for this Bible study series, which you'll see in the uh, study books in your small group, this, this is the theme statement. It says, thriving in transition in ways that lead to transformation comes through everyday practices of praying for wisdom, lamenting in community, holding on to hope, stepping out in trust, and maintaining perspective. And so we'll be walking through each of those everyday practices in the weeks ahead. But uh, the thing we need to notice is uh, that, uh, that those, those uh, everyday practices are the ways in which we turn our attention to Christ. And so by, by uh, carrying those out, by turning to Christ in those everyday practices, in those different ways, then we open our hearts to the transformation that God wants to bring. And so through this study, we want to give you not just information about transition, but we want to give you ways, opportunities to actually engage in that, to turn and behold the glory of God, to open your heart to the transformation that he wants to bring in this season. And so engage fully in these times of, of corporate worship together. Engage fully in the sharing of life together in small groups. And through those ways, uh, I believe God will open the door that this season of transition will also be a season of transformation. God is glorious we celebrate, we rejoice in His infinite worth, His beauty and his, his holiness. And as we turn our attention, focus our attention on that glory, God allows seasons of transition that we walk through to become opportunities for transformation. And future glory waits. So would you pray with me?
Lord God, thank you that you have placed us in each season that we go through. And God, thank you that you have good plans for us in the midst of these seasons of transition. Not just to bring us through it, but Lord, to change us in the process. And so God, would you open our hearts to the change that you want to bring, both corporately together and individually as your children. Lord, may we turn our focus to you, that as things are uncomfortable or different or hard, Lord, may we trust you more. We, may we look to you. May we see your glory and be changed as a result. So we give you thanks, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.